are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've arrived here at the Beatitudes. Jesus begins this sermon, one of the most famous sermons in all of Scripture, and Jesus starts off with these nine blesseds. And that word blessed, as we looked at a few Sundays ago, it's not just speaking about happiness, but it's speaking about a joy and a happiness that is rooted deeply and even independent of all the changes and chances and things that come and go in this life. It is something that is here and it is here to stay. It's not a happiness that comes and goes depending on the day or the season or our emotions, but it is something that is untouchable and serene, William Barclay tells us, completely independent from all the chances and changes in life. We looked at three of the blesseds a few weeks ago. Today we'll look at the next three. So verse 6 tells us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. Now it's very difficult to say hunger and thirst is a blessing. I don't think any of us would say that. Normally we would count that as a curse, but it's a blessing because here Jesus says they shall be satisfied. They will be filled. And David Guzik says the desire of one who has poverty of spirit, that first beatitude, Mourning for sin, that second beatitude, and meekness, the desire of one who has poverty of spirit and mourning of sin and meekness, that desire is righteousness. It's righteousness. We ought to desire more and more righteousness if we really realize how poor we are spiritually, how much we mourn over our sins. The only thing that makes sense is that we would desire more and more righteousness. Psalm 11, verse 7 tells us, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness, and his countenance beholds the upright. God himself is righteous, and he loves righteousness. So how much more as his sons and daughters should we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Psalm 23, verse 3, a famous psalm. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 28, in the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. If you want life and that abundantly in this current life and in the one to come, we need to be obedient to Jesus Christ and his word and live in the way of righteousness. One last scripture, Proverbs 16, verse 31 it says, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory, 
doesn't just stop there if you have that crown of glory today, right? It says, if it is found in the way of righteousness. If it's found in the way of righteousness, right? It's been said there are some who age like fine wine, and there are those who age like vinegar, right? <laughs> how, are you, how are you aging? I, I believe it's completely dependent on your lifestyle. Are you living according to God and according to His Word, according to, as we'll see in a, a moment, having mercy and having a pure heart and desiring to be a peacemaker, then your family will see that silver-haired head as a crown of glory. And when you're all alone... And no one is watching, what do you hunger for? When you're all alone at night, what do you hunger for? I'm not talking about late night nachos or cookies or ice cream or, or anything like that. There are some people who, when they're all alone, they're more prone to eating in unhealthy ways. And then there are others that when they're social and with their other people, I'm a social eater, so I eat anytime I'm in social settings, right? And that's when I'm more prone to not eat so well. But that's not what Jesus is speaking of here. He's saying when you're all alone, when no one is watching, what do you hunger and thirst for? Do you hunger and thirst to get alone in isolation so you can have that pornography? Do you desire to get alone and be all by yourself so that you can be watching things you know are not right with the Lord or talk to that person you shouldn't be talking to or partaking of that substance you shouldn't be partaking in? Or do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is your desire for the things of this world or is your desire for the things which can only come from a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is your desire for just a specific political party to win or is your hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be more and more within our world and nation and our own homes? Do you hunger and thirst for comfort and ease in your life, or is your life displaying the righteousness of Jesus Christ to the world around you? James chapter 4 verse 8 tells us, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's what Jesus is telling us here, that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, you shall be satisfied. You're going to be filled to overflowing with that. It's been said that appetite reveals nature. A lion loves to eat raw meat because he's a lion, right? You don't see a cow going out and eating other cows, right? That's not what cows do. That's what I do. I go out and I eat other cows, but that's not what cows do because that is not their nature, and I have a different nature. What is your appetite? You can look at that, and I'll take a step back and say, Lord, what is my true nature? If my appetite is always for sin and sin and ease and comfort and sin and ease and comfort, are you truly a son or daughter of God? We could turn quickly to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. God bless you. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you're here and you're saying you're saved, if you're here and you're saying you're spending eternity in heaven and not in hell for all of eternity, you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Your appetite should want more and more of Jesus Christ in your life and for you to look more and more like Jesus Christ to the people around you. And we know that Jesus, he didn't desire or hunger and thirst for comfort or the easy path. Jesus, his hunger, his desire was to do the will of his Father, the will of him who sent him. What do we hunger for? What do we desire for? Do we desire holiness? Charles Spurgeon, he says, alas, says he, it is not enough for me to know that my sin is forgiven. I have a fountain of sin within my heart. And bitter waters continually flow from it. Oh, that my nature could be changed so that I, the lover of sin, could be made a lover of that which is good. That I, now full of evil, could become full of holiness. And this is the trade that Jesus offers to us. Jesus offers the trade, hey, I'll take upon all your sin and all your shame. I'll take it to the cross. I'll bear the full wrath of the omnipotent God. And now you can take my holiness. You can take my righteousness. We can turn to Psalm 17. And here David compares and contrasts two different groups of people. And where their hunger, where their thirst, where their satisfaction lies. Psalm 17, Psalm 17, verse 14 and 15, it's a psalm of David, and he says, With your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life. And whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Here David, he's asking for deliverance. In verse 13 he says, Arise, O Lord, and confront him, cast him down, and deliver my life from the wicked. And the wicked, the unbeliever, their life has their portion and satisfaction in the here and now. We as believers, our satisfaction comes in the life to come. Where does your satisfaction have its roots? Is all of your satisfaction in this life? Or does your satisfaction, does your blessing, does your joy come in the life to come? In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, it tells us, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. One day we'll see Jesus face to face, and then we will be completely satisfied, as David just said. Where's our satisfaction? Is it only in the things of this world? Or is it spending more and more time with Jesus? And then the ultimate satisfaction is when we awake in his likeness and we see him face to face. 
David Brown, he puts Matthew 5 this way. He says, those who deepest cravings are after spiritual blessings shall be saturated. If your deepest craving, if the thing you long for the most in your personal life, in your marriage, in your family, and in your children is truly spiritual blessings, God will saturate you with that satisfaction. Whereas sin always leaves us with desire. It always leaves us hungry. If we're honest, it leaves us worse off than where we started. In Job chapter 20, verse 12, it says, Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but he still keeps it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. Sin at first, it tastes sweet, but as it goes down and we begin to digest it, the wages of sin is death. It becomes cobra venom within him. I always think of my brothers and sisters who are lactose intolerant. Not because you're lactose intolerant because you're in sin. We're not like the disciples thinking people have physical curses because of sin. No, because you look at that milkshake and you know what's going to happen. And yet you say, oh, but it's going to be so sweet, right? They say it's going to be worth it. They drink it. They're happy. Then an hour later, two hours later, Zach, pray for me. I'm in pain, right? <laughs> Whatever the case may be. It's sweet in the mouth. But later on, when that sin hits your stomach, it's cobra venom. In John chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus' first miracle of transforming the water into wine, the leader of that feast says, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And then when his guests have well drunk, then he sets out the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. And family, that's exactly what God does for us. When we don't have a satisfaction or desire for the things of this world, when our hunger and our satisfaction is in righteousness and in spiritual blessing, we receive the best in this season. And then in the next season, it's even sweeter. And then in the next season, it's even better. And then the season after that, it's even better because with God, there is life. There's a fountain of life flowing out of him. But in sin, there is death and a fountain of death flowing out of that. In Luke 18, the disciples are questioning Jesus. They're saying, Lord, we've given everything to follow you. What will we receive? And Jesus answers them in Luke 18, verse 29. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present life and in the age to come eternal life. What, what fear is keeping you from having that hunger and thirst for righteousness? What fear is it that you're going to lose a house, you're going to lose a relationship, parents, brothers, wife, or children? If you lose it for the sake of the kingdom, if you lose it for speaking the truth in love, if you lose it because the conscience and the Holy Spirit within you says, I can't do this anymore, you're going to receive many more times in this life and in the life to come. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the things of Jesus Christ will be satisfied not only in the life to come, but also in the here and now. 
Whereas those who are in sin and constantly have a hunger and thirst for sin, for comfort, for ease, for gossip, for throwing trash at other people, they find no satisfaction in this life and they'll never find satisfaction in the life to come. You see your two options here? Our two options is either always being hungry in this life and in the one to come or always being filled and satisfied in this life and in the one to come. This all stems from the jumping board of being forgiven much, of being those who realize just how spiritually bankrupt and poor we are. In Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The joy of this morning is perhaps you've been convicted, perhaps you've been, man, you just feel bad and terrible. Psalm 32, today your transgressions can be forgiven. Today your sin can be covered. Today the Lord can stop imputing that iniquity upon you and can just have it imputed upon Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. David Brown tells us that the foregoing Beatitudes, these four, represent the saints rather as conscience of their need of salvation. And now the next three are a different kind, representing the saints as having now found salvation and conducting themselves accordingly. Because the next Beatitude in verse 7 is impossible without the Lord. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Have you ever sat back and wondered? I really didn't think about that this much until I was studying for this Bible study. Why does King David receive so much mercy? Why does David get so much mercy? A man who took multiple wives knowing that that was sinful and wrong? A man who stayed at home when he should have been at war with his brothers? A man who committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his mighty men of valor? Granddaughter to one of the men in his own cabinet? A man who covers up, attempts to cover up his sin several times by bringing Uriah back into town and trying to get him to sleep with his wife? He then gets Uriah drunk, and yet Uriah is so faithful, he does not go home to his wife. Then he murders Uriah because of his faithfulness, and then he proceeds to cover up his sin for many, many months. Why does this man receive so much mercy from God? Did he not deserve death? He deserved death many times over. But what we have to remember is how much mercy did David bestow upon King Saul? How merciful was David to King Saul, the man that destroyed his marriage, the man that destroyed his home, the man that took his job, the man that took everything that he had and took it, tried to take his life several times? How much mercy did David show when he had all the right and power to kill Saul and badmouth him, but he showed meekness and mercy instead? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. David writes Psalm 18 
And in Psalm 18, I'll just read verse 1 and verse 25. In Psalm 18, verse 1, it says, A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Then in verse 25, David, he says, With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. You see, we as believers, Richard Trench tells us, we stand in the middle point. We stand in the middle because we've received so much mercy in our past, and yet we need so much more mercy in our future. We should give an incredible amount of mercy to other people because we have received so much mercy. Each of us, we've received so much mercy. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. And as God would have it fit, we looked at a lot of these scriptures a couple Wednesdays ago, looking at the Calvary Chapel distinctive of grace upon grace. But here in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3, verse 12, it tells us, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. We can stop there. Who's the elect of God, holy and beloved? That's, that's us. If you're saved, if you say you're going to heaven when you die, if you're a disciple, if you're a Christian, this is you. This is me. So we, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, we are to put on Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Does that verse look like a suggestion? It's a command here. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, Paul tells the church of Ephesus, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You see, we need to give mercy to others because we have been given so much mercy. But now there's a concern here that if we are not forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us, there are warnings all over Scripture. In Matthew 16, verse 14 and 15, it tells us, For if you forgive men their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Can any of us afford to never be forgiven again by God the Father? I certainly cannot. In Luke chapter 6, verse 37, Scripture everybody knows in the United States of America, right? Judge not and you shall not be judged. Everybody knows that verse. But it keeps going. It says, condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. 
Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. The same measure you use, the same amount of mercy and forgiveness you use, that's the same you're going to receive. And if we call ourselves believers and are not forgiving others, we are in dangerous territory. Now, you don't have to be that person's best friend for the rest of your life here. You don't have to be attached to the hip with them. You don't have to do anything specific. But you can forgive them their trespasses. We should forgive them their trespasses because that's what we have been commanded to do. And with the same measure that you used, it will be measured back to you. If you have kids, you know this isn't the reality for them, right? Their carnal nature is out there on display. If you give them a bag of popcorn and say, hey, share this with your brother and sister, how do they share it? One for you, one for you, the bag for me, right? And they just walk away. That's why if you're, right, as a parent, you get wiser and wiser. You say, okay, one of you cut it and the other of you, you choose first which one you get, right? That way they're more prone to be fair and give equal treatment. Each of us, we hit that conundrum, right? Someone is driving in a way that is not safe or flat out insane in, in Miami, right? And we see a police officer with lights start following them. And what do we say? Give them wrath, oh Lord, right? <laughs> Give them the full justice of the law. But what happens to you and me when we're driving and all of a sudden our rearview mirror is blue and red lights, right? Lord, have mercy. <laughs> Have mercy, O oh Lord. We're, we're all there. This is our carnal nature. This is why we need to cry out and, Lord, change my heart. Change my heart. One last scary scripture on this. James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do we really think that we can go through the judgment of the omnipotent and all-knowing God without any mercy? Do we think we have any chance there? We have been shown so much mercy and we need so much mercy as we continue in this life. So we, so I need to do my best to give out mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Because the amount of mercy and grace I bestow on other people, that's the same measure that's going to be measured back to me. Going through life, I've just noticed this interesting thing. In restaurants, and I haven't eaten with every single one of you at a restaurant, right? But in restaurants, that person that's short with the waiter, that person that's harsh with the waiter, that person that's always sending their food back at the drop of a dime, right? It just seems like they always get the bad waiter on their last day before they quit, right? Just over and over and over again. To the measure they dish it out, they get it there over and over and over again. But if you're kind, if you're gracious, if you're merciful, hey, here's a free dessert. Here's a free appetizer, right? The blessing has just come back. And God warns us, hey, if you show a lot of mercy, I'm going to show you lots of mercy. If you're always harsh and judgmental and critical of other people, preparate, right? Get ready, because that's what's going to happen to you. And once again, I don't know about you, I need a lot of mercy. I need so much mercy. Verse 8 tells us, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
And perhaps you read the first few blesseds and you thought you were on a good run, right? You realize, you know just the spiritual poverty that you have. You know your spiritual bankruptcy. You mourn over your own sin. You weep over it and the sins of our world. You keep your power under control in difficult and pressured situations. You have meekness. You have a hunger and thirst for more righteousness in your life. And you give out mercy because you know how much mercy you've received and how much more mercy that you need. But now you come to blessed are the pure in heart. And if you're honest with yourself, you say, whoop, all right, Lord, there it went. I don't have that one. I don't know about you, but when it comes to having a pure in heart, I like my coffee black just like my soul, right? Black. It's black. My soul, my heart, it's terrible. It's terrible. And hopefully you're honest enough that when you read this verse, you get a little down. Because Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. So if you think you're a great person, that you're just innately good, take some time and meditate on Jeremiah 17.9. Our hearts are evil and deceitful above all things. If it was up to our own heart, no one would ever see God. Matthew 15, verse 18 and 19, Jesus says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart. And that's what defiles a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. It's creeping into the church more and more that my sin really isn't my fault. My sin is because of my parents. It's because of my upbringing. It's because of my culture. It's because of what's happened to me. That is not biblical. Biblically, the sin that you do, it proceeds from your own heart. It proceeds from our own heart. Our own heart is what devises these evil thoughts, that murder, that hatred towards someone else. Our own heart is where it produces adultery, fornication, and all the sexual sin that we see today. Our heart is what produces the thefts and the covetousness and the false witness, the lies and the blasphemies. Even David says in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. If it was up to our own heart, none of us would see God. But thank God that he is the God of miracles. And what Jesus is doing here to the multitudes is he's letting them know, unless you come to me, you will never see God. Because David continues in that same Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is how we gain this pure heart. It's by asking God, pleading with God, Lord, create in me a clean heart. That word create in the Hebrew is the word bara. It's the same word create as in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 when God creates out of nothing the heavens and the earth. You see, our hearts, our lives are not a renovation project. If we really want God to change us, it's a demolition project. We got to say, God, you got to come in here with the TNT, with the explosives, put the countdown, put the video, the live stream, and you got to detonate this thing. You got to explode it because, Lord, I have no good within me. Lord, you need to create in me a clean heart because, Lord, my heart is abundantly wicked and deceptive. 
And then David continues, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's a single-minded spirit. So often we're always between two choices. We're half in this world and half in the Lord. We always want the gray area. We want to toe the line where David says, Lord, renew in me a steadfast spirit within me. You can think of Caleb. He gets this inheritance in the promised land because he wholly sought after the Lord. His heart was wholly about God and his business. And this teaching of Jesus was so different than that of the Pharisees. Jesus says, blessed are those with a pure heart, where the Pharisees would say, blessed are those with a ton of religious works, for they shall see God. It's not about our works. It's not about our attendance or our perceived outside. It's all about the inner man. What does your inner man, your inner woman, what does it truly look like? What do you hunger for when you're all alone and no one's around? Charles Spurgeon, he says, it's not blessed are the pure in language. Or blessed are the pure in action, much less blessed are the pure in ceremonies, or blessed are the pure in clothing, or blessed are the pure in food, but blessed are the pure in heart. Because Jesus Christ was dealing with men's spirits, with their inner and spiritual nature. Family, what does your inner man, your inner woman crave? Where are you at? Do you crave, do you have that pure heart that wants more and more of the Lord? And the only way to have a pure heart is to come to Jesus Christ and then continue to want more and more and more of Him more than anything else. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to give us that pure heart. It goes back to Psalm 32. We read it earlier. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Do you have a pure heart? Has that hard heart been taken away and now God has given you that heart of flesh? And this all starts out with the miracle, the mercy, and the work of Jesus Christ. How he's forgiven us. He's cleansed us. He's covered us. And he's adopted us into his family and grafted us into his very own body. And the only way this is made possible is through the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you and I. How he lived a perfect life. Then he was beaten tortured, and died the worst death that has ever been made possible on the cross for you and I, so that his precious blood can cleanse us from all of our sin. But we don't just stay there and do nothing with his sacrifice. We should be desiring more and more of Jesus Christ, more and more of his presence, and more and more of his authority in our lives. A great question this morning is, is the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has it been a waste in your life? The great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what has your life breathed out of that great sacrifice? All that he's done for you, what have you done with it? 
What have you done with the king, for the kingdom of heaven? Or are you all about this world and the mindset of this world? Are you still about comfort and sin and all of the lies going on today? Or are you about your father's business? Those that have a pure heart will see God. Paul would constantly say, I'm looking towards the prize. I'm thinking about heaven and the rewards that will be given there. It's not a sinful thing to live this life being conscious of the rewards that we will receive for all of eternity. Another thing Paul said is that the grace that God has bestowed upon me will not be in vain, but I'll labor more abundantly than them all. Has the great and incredible sacrifice of God's only begotten Son, has it been a waste in your life? Are you living a prodigal lifestyle. Again, this dawned on me this morning. You could be here in church this morning and living a prodigal lifestyle. That word prodigal just means a wasteful life. A wasteful life. And looking at the incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there are many so-called Christians today that are wasting their life away. Wasting it away. Are you living a prodigal lifestyle and not even know it? Or are you allowing the great sacrifice, the great price that Jesus has paid to purchase you and adopt you and free you from sin and free you from hell? And you're saying, Lord, I want to labor more abundantly than them all. Not because it saves me, but just because I want to show you how much I love you. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 tells us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The natural desire within the person that has been forgiven of their sins, the natural desire for the person who has had their evil heart sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ is to draw nearer and nearer to Him, is to desire that pure heart to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus did not die on the cross for your sins and save you from hell just so you could live the American dream. That's not the purpose of salvation. That's not the purpose of Jesus dying. Jesus has died to save you and then so that we would serve the living God. That's his purpose for your life and for my life. Eternity, heaven, eternal life, it all begins now. It all begins today. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we should desire more of his presence we should desire to see God. And we should also desire more of His authority in our lives. Because guess what? In heaven, everyone will be in His presence. Guess what? In heaven, the entire universe will be under His rule and authority. So eternal life, it begins today. How much of your life is truly under the authority of Jesus Christ? How much of the presence of Jesus Christ is in your life? Because the more authority you have in your life, more of the authority of Jesus Christ, which practically is living a life of obedience according to the Bible, you will sin less and less and less. 
The more of his authority we have in our lives, we're going to be sinning less and less. And the more we will taste of the presence of Jesus Christ. It's this beautiful thing. As we love him, as we desire more of him, as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. As we're in his presence, we sin less and less, and then we get more of his presence. And it's this incredible blessing that we continue to grow, that the, this season is sweeter than the last season. And the next season, as we continue to grow and mature with the Lord, is sweeter than the one before that. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll jump around these different epistles from the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 1. John's nickname is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we don't know if he gave himself that nickname. It's always corny when you give yourself a nickname, right? Hey, from now on, call me whatever, X, Y, Z, right? It's always weird, but perhaps another disciple gave him that nickname. However, we should pay attention to a man that is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus called beloved. We should pay attention to him if he has anything to say on fellowship with Jesus Friendship with Jesus, relationship with Jesus. And now notice what John says in 1 John 1, 6 and 7. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. Again, just that process that happens. We're given that pure heart, and when we're given that pure heart, we will see God, we'll have that fellowship with Him, we'll walk in the light, and that process continues over and over and over again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, it says, Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins, has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, speaking of Jesus, is righteous. Now John's not speaking of sinless perfection here, but he's speaking of if we take all of your life, all of your life's work, all of your thoughts, all of your emotions, all of your interactions with your family members, with your coworkers, and we put it on a scale Is sin and self going to be the thing that comes out the most? Or is it going to be righteousness and love and the fruit of Jesus Christ? Jim spoke two Sundays ago about abiding in Jesus Christ. And if we abide in him, it tells us we will bear much fruit. And now John is telling us if we abide in him, we won't be in sin. We won't constantly be in sin. So for us, are you abiding in Jesus Christ? You're not going to be constantly in sin. If you're constantly in sin, you're probably not abiding in Jesus Christ. Finally, 3 John chapter 1, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Once again, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 tells us, Pursue peace with all people and 
holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You're never going to see God if you're not pursuing holiness. If you're not pursuing peace with people. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is a natural byproduct of truly being a disciple and a believer of Jesus Christ. Holiness is a natural byproduct for the person that is truly on their way to heaven. Are we craving holiness? Are we growing in holiness? Are we sinning less and less and yet repenting and mourning more and more over our sins? It goes back to David in Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Hey, you want to see God? You got to have him give you that pure heart, and then you got a desire to grow in righteousness. You got a desire, like Paul desired, Lord, I don't want this incredible grace bestowed upon me to be a waste to be prodigal, to be wasteful living. David Guzik, he says, ultimately this intimate relationship with God must become our greatest motivation for purity. Greater than a fear of getting caught and greater than a fear of consequences. This is what drives us to grow more and more with the Lord. It's out of love. It's out of love. If you're just afraid of people catching you in your sin, sooner or later you're just going to do it when you... Do all that you can for people not to realize it. Bible tells us it's going to get realized anyway, so it's dumb. But yeah, it's still going to happen. A fear of consequences. In the world that we're living in, the consequences, they're dumbing down less and less for sin. But eternally, there's still going to be consequences. What we need to do is grow that love for God. And if you truly love God, you're going to want to be obedient to Him. If you truly love God, you're going to want to look like Him. It's like in Romans, are we going to just sin over and over and over again? God forbid, right? That's what he says. Let's walk in holiness because I desire to see him. Do you desire to be in his presence? Do you desire to spend time with God to truly see him? It's only going to come to the pure in heart, not the sinful in heart or the self-righteous in heart. No, the pure in heart. Charles Spurgeon says, only those who aim at godliness can cry out, mine eyes are ever towards the Lord. The desire of Moses, I beseech thee, show me thy glory, can only be fulfilled in us as we purify ourselves from all iniquity. We shall see him as he is, and everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself. The enjoyment of present fellowship and the hope of the beautiful vision are urgent motives for purity of heart and of life. Oh Lord, make us pure in heart that we may see you. We, we need to continue to say, Lord, give me that pure heart. I want to see you. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 and 2, it tells us, If then you were raised with Christ, who are those who were raised with Christ? Christians, right? Again, once again, you say you're a Christian. You say you're going to heaven. You say you're not going to hell when you die. Then you have to be raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. These three beatitudes, they go one in another. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? 
If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be satisfied. You're going to have that pure heart. If you have that pure heart, you're going to see God. But where's your mind on? Is your mind only on the things of this earth? Or is your mind on the heavenly things, the eternal things? Finally, let's turn to Romans chapter 12. And we'll close up here in Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 9. This is after he beseeches us, he begs us to present our lives as a living sacrifice. After he tells us to not be conformed to this world, but have our mind renewed. As he tells us to walk this life soberly and to be plugged into the body of Christ. After all this, verse 9, he tells us, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continually, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality." This scripture has been coming up in my mind over and over and again this past few weeks. Are we abhorring what is evil and are we clinging to that which is good? Look at your last week, your last month, your last six months. Are you abhorring, throwing away that which is evil and clinging to that which is good? Our emotions can make us do silly things, right? Have you ever started cleaning out your closet and you realize all the random things that you've kept because you have an emotional attachment to them? And to the person next to you, they're looking at you like you're crazy. They're about to call TLC and put you on the Packers show, right, or whatever the case may be. But you have all your emotional attachment in it. One of the greatest emotional attachments parents have with their children, right? And especially with that first child, maybe not the second, third, or fourth, but especially with that first child, right? You keep their first everything. Do you cling to that first dirty diaper? No, right? Because that thing is evil. That thing is wicked. That thing is terrible. You abhor it. You throw it away. You propel that away from you and away from your lifestyle. That is how we are to react to any evil and sin within our lives. We're really good at doing it in our spouse or our friends, or in our kids, hey, that's evil, you should abhor that. Let me rip that out of you and throw it away from you. We're super good at that. But when we look in the mirror, the evil that we are clinging to, are we saying, Lord, strengthen me and help me abhor this. Help me send this out of my life. And are we clinging, holding on to that which is good? Is God's word good? Are we clinging to it day in and day out? Is Bible study good? Fellowship with the brethren good? Is prayer good? Are we clinging to these things? If we're honest, our carnal nature wants to do the opposite. Bitterness, unforgiveness, that's what I cling to, right? That's not what I abhor. He's telling us to do the opposite. Those things which are evil and sinful, we are to abhor. Throw that away from you. But those things which are good, we are to cling to. So my brothers, my sisters, what have you been clinging on to lately? What have you been holding on to? 
Are you holding on to holy things, pure things, things that are from above? Are you clinging to the things of this earth? What have been your cravings when you're all alone in the middle of the night? What are the nachos and ice cream and cookies that you're craving for? Is it sin? Is it pride? Is it comfort? Or is it more time with the Lord? Is it more of his presence? Is it more and more of his righteousness in your life? Has your mind and thoughts been on the things which are above, on those things that will outlive you, on those things which will last for all of eternity? Or has your mind and your thoughts been in sinful things, in worry and in anxiety and in depression? Has your mind been on the sins and weights of this world which so easily entangle us and so easily distract us? Have we been quick to deal out mercy to others? Remembering just how much mercy we have received and how much more mercy we still need. Is my heart divided or am I wholly following and desiring the Lord our God? Do I truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do I really want to see his face? Do I desire the presence of Jesus Christ? Do I clear my schedule out because I say, Lord, I want your presence And not only do I want your presence, Jesus, not only do I want your peace, but I know I can't have your presence and I can't have your peace without more of your authority in my life. Or is my desire just the presence of comfort, the presence of laziness, the presence of sin, the presence of gossip, the presence of other substances that dumb down the reality of where I'm at today? Brothers and sisters, we can come boldly to the throne of mercy and simply ask, Lord, Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my sins and cleanse me today. So, Lord, that's exactly what we ask you, Lord. None of us are perfect, Lord. Each and every one of us, Lord, we've sinned and we've fallen short, Lord. So, Lord, would you strengthen us, Lord? Would you help us, Holy Spirit? Would you fill us afresh and anew? And, Lord, would you give us that power, Lord, to not live a life of fear, Lord, but to live a life of power, Lord? To live a life that has that agape love. To have that sound mind, Lord. Lord, help us to walk in these truths, Lord. And Lord, for anyone today that perhaps it just dawned on them that they are living a prodigal life. Even if they're here at church. Even if they've been attending church, Lord. If anyone, it's dawned on them today, Lord, that they've been living a wasteful life. Lord, would they weep and mourn over their sin, Lord. Stir up their hearts, Lord, to pray, to pray and ask for that forgiveness, Lord, and allow that pain to be a fire in their belly to serve you all the more, Lord. May you stir that up in each and every one of us, Lord. May none of us want this incredible gift of salvation to just be a waste in our lives, Lord. Help each of us, Lord, to labor more abundantly, Lord. Help us to really desire those eternal rewards, Lord. Those rewards, those crowns, those blessings that will last for all of eternity. Help us to set our minds on things above and not just on the things of this earth, Lord. So, Lord, we love you. Thank you that you love us first, Lord, when we were dead in our sins. Even today, Lord, if we're slipping away, Lord, you still love us. You still want to forgive us, Lord. Thank you for your grace, Lord, that tells us to get back and to run back to you. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.